I'm going to introduce Justin Nash, although I don't think there's anyone here who needs to be introduced to him. Um, Justin is the Director of Communications across the street at the ACGC headquarters. He uh, is, has for a long time been in different types of leadership and teaching positions at Shiloh Advent Christian Church in Monroe, and most recently as filling in in an interim function um, while they've been between full-time pastors there. Um, Justin is, uh, he's also a friend of mine. He's the kind of friend that finds a way to pay for lunch when you go out to lunch with him. Um, he pays. I don't pay. Some people like looked over at Justin like, what a jerk. <laughs> no, I'm saying he finds a way to pay for my lunch. I'm saying he's generous. Uh, he's the kind of friend that you go to for advice. Um, I've immediately respected Justin, and I think others who know him feel the same way. So he spoke last year at our revival and did an excellent job, so much so that we invited him back this year. He will be speaking tonight and tomorrow night. And then the final two evenings of revival, Jeff Walsh will speak, and I'll introduce him then. But for now, I would like to pray for you, Justin, and for us, and then I'll turn it over to you. Let's pray. Father, as we turn to your word now, I pray that you would just take center stage, captivate us with your voice. Please enable Justin to serve faithfully, to speak clearly your word in Jesus' name. Amen. the kind introduction of course now i'm going to feel obligated to pay for lunch every time we go out so it's a pretty good trick actually a compliment um wow it's a it's a great privilege thank you so much for for letting me come back here um i do feel like i'm home to some degree after last year it's just such a great experience and so I really do count it an honor and a privilege to be here. So thank you so much for that. Matt, um, going into revival this year, he, he met with, with Jeff and with me. And he um, we were trying to sort of figure out together what direction to go. And he decided um, uh, that First John would be an appropriate place to go for revival this year and an appropriate book to look at. And... And so then he um, he handed out assignments after that. So he got the first pick, of course, which was um, to his advantage. But uh, again, just thank you so much for the privilege of being here. And thank you for the honor of sharing with you tonight. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn to the letter of 1 John, to the second chapter. I'm going to be reading from verses 1 through 6. So if you're able, I'd like to invite you to stand as we read from the Word of God. Uh, 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. 
But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us through it. Lord, now tonight as we take a few moments to consider your word, we would just ask for your guidance and your help. Father, teach us. Clear our hearts and our minds from anything that might distract us. And give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to understand. Father, make your word live to us. Pray that I would neither be seen nor heard. But I pray that we would all hear your word clearly. Use it tonight, Lord, to bring yourself honor, to bring yourself glory, and to transform us into the image of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. I want to start tonight by, by just sort of sharing some, a couple of things, sort of a, a couple of warnings, disclaimers, before, we, before the next couple of nights. And then one thing, the first thing I'm going to say might seem kind of obvious, but it's a point I think needs to be made is that what we are talking about, what I'm going to talk about, what Jeff is going to talk about, what Matt talked about this morning, is either historical fact or it is historical fiction. It is either true or it is not. It is either real and literal or it is nothing at all. At the beginning of this letter, John makes this claim. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Jesus was real. The cross was a real event at a real place and a real time that happened to real people. I say that because so often we become so familiar with this message of the gospel. We become so familiar with the message of the cross that it becomes something other than a real event. It becomes a mythology. It becomes a fable. It becomes a, t- um, a morality tale. It becomes this thing that is supposed to move us and motivate us and make us better. But it's no different than one of Aesop's fables. Now, we may never say that, but that's how we approach it because we become so familiar with it. So, my, my, my warning, my encouragement is don't let the cross become too familiar to you we can't do that when that happens we lose it tonight i would invite you to see the cross with fresh eyes to hear the gospel with fresh ears like you've never heard it before because what i'm going to talk about tonight and tomorrow night are both very similar ideas this idea tonight is that any good that we do any good behavior that we have flows from Jesus. It flows from what He has done and what He is doing on our behalf. It doesn't flow from us. And we need to understand that. It flows from this very real event. I have a theory 
that I operate on. That we will never ever love Jesus like we should until we first understand how much He loves us. What I'm talking about tonight, what I want us to understand is that we are not merely moved by what Jesus did for us. We are not merely inspired by what He did for us. We are radically transformed and changed because of what He has done and because of what He is doing. So I want us to look at that in the text tonight. I want us to see three things. I want us to see what Jesus is doing, what Jesus has done, and what we are to be doing. So first I want us to look at what Jesus is doing. And we're going to look at our position, our sin, and our attitude to begin with. Notice how he begins. He says, My little children... It is obvious up front who John is writing this to. John is writing this letter to believers. He's not writing for unbelievers here. He's writing for us. And it's appropriate as a revival text, I think, because I think revival is for the church primarily. It is to revive us as believers in Christ. And so he he comes here and he says, My little children. So he's writing to believers and he says, These things I write to you so that you may not sin. Now, if, to understand what he's saying here, he's not saying that, you know, I, I'm, I'm writing to you to tell you not to sin much. He said, I'm not writing to you to say just sin just a little bit. Now, actually, if you look at what he's saying, he's saying, I'm writing to you because I want you to pursue the ideal here to not sin at all. He said, I don't want you to do that. He says, don't sin. Don't even play with it. Don't even give in to it. But he goes on and to follow that up, that admonition up, and he makes it clear that he understands that that is really an impossibility, that we will never sin at all. Because he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, he's saying, when he's talking about sin in here, he, he means it in a very specific way. He's talking about the occasional sins that we engage in as Christians. You know, we, we, we all sin every day, all the time. Just kind of these constant little things that we do that are contrary to the Word of God. Contrary to what Christ would have us to do. But these are the things he's talking about. He's not talking about this, this idea of habitually living in sin. Habitually doing things that are contrary to the Word of God. He... You know, it's interesting here because he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Notice suddenly it goes from anyone out there to us. It goes from all of you guys to me. He includes himself in this. He says, look, we're going to sin. It's going to happen. It's just going to be something that's going to be a part of us and we're just going to have to deal with it while we're here. If we commit a, a sin, there's a way to deal with it. Again, it's important that we understand what John is not saying here. He's not saying you can go and do whatever you want. It's not the habit of Christians to live in sin. It's not our habit to just, to just live in it like a pig and sort of roll around in it. We don't like it. You know, my little boy is funny. He's four now. He cannot stand to have anything wet on. 
I mean, and when I say wet, I mean, he gets a drop of apple juice on him. He's shucking off his clothes because he just hates it that much. It's just this whatever thing he's got. And that's the way we have to be about sin. You know, as Christians, if, we, if we're like my little boy and we can just jump in the pool and get as wet as we want and we don't care, there's a problem. John here is talking about when we sin, when we get the little specks on us. And he's saying, obviously, that it's, uh, it's something that happens to everybody. I mean, the Apostle John himself saying he wrestles with it. Now, you can't, you can't divorce chapter 2 from chapter 1. I really don't know how far Matt got this morning, but I want to back up just a little bit because we see something happening here. We see a progression in verses 8, I'm going to start in verse 8 of chapter 1. He says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. What we see here at the beginning of the chapter 2 is the end of what happened, began there in chapter 1. John says, look, he says to these people, you guys who say you don't have any sin in your life, you're liars. Because we all have sin in our life. We all have to deal with it. And so he says, no, you have sin. Understand that. And the first step into dealing with it is to confess it. In verse 9, it says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. And then we see here in... in Verse 1 of chapter 2, the next step after confession. And that's repentance. He says, basically, forsake it. Get rid of it. Have nothing to do with it. Put it behind you. And that's a problem a lot of times when we're dealing with our sin with God, is that we, we confess it, but we never let go of it. We never forsake it. We never turn it over. We never give it away to Him. And say, I'm not going to do that anymore. But John says that's the next natural step. But he says this, if we sin, we don't need to fear. Because of what Jesus is doing on our behalf. When I was little, I don't know, elementary school to sometime in middle school, I decided I wanted to be a lawyer when I grew up. Now, over time, I figured out that A, it was way too much work. (laughs) And B, I wasn't smart enough. But I'll tell you in two words why I wanted to be a lawyer. Now, some of you, this is not going to make any sense, but some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about. Perry Mason. Okay? Okay, I wanted to be a lawyer because of Perry Mason. I used to watch Perry Mason all the time. And he was the greatest attorney ever, right? He never lost. He was so cool. And, I mean, he just made it look so easy. And it was great. And I wanted to be an attorney because of Perry Mason. And that's what I want you to think about here. A defense attorney. Because Paul says that's what Jesus is. He says that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Now, the word there, advocate, literally means one called to your side. And it's, a, it's a, used in the, here in a legal sense. It talks about somebody who's a, a friend of an accused person called to speak to his character or somehow otherwise enlist the sympathy of the judge. So think, again, defense attorney. That's what it's saying. We've sinned. We've committed a crime. But 
we have a defense attorney on our side. We have somebody who is going to step in for us and advocate on our behalf, intercede on our behalf with the judge. Jesus is our advocate with the Father. He intercedes on our behalf. He takes our place. His intercession, his advocacy is unique in all of creation and it's special for a few reasons. Number one is that his intercession, his advocacy on our behalf is continual. That's what it says there in the text. It says, when he says we have an advocate with the Father, the language there in the original communicates that the Son is always facing the Father. That's the idea there. Uh, Being with the Father. Facing the Father. So we have Jesus who is always continually in front of his Father. Always continually face to face with his Father. In this relationship. We fail. We sin. We go to Jesus. Jesus intercedes on our behalf. Why? Because he is always continually before the Father. There's no time when he's ever not there. When we go to him, he will always be there with his Father. Number two, his, his intercession is unique. He is the only one in the history of the world who's ever been qualified to plead our case. He's the only one who is perfect and holy and just and right, who can enter into his Father's presence. Nobody else has ever been able to do that. Only Jesus. He's special in that regard. This is who we have interceding with us for our Father. His intercession is continual. It is unique. But there's a third thing. It's honest. You know, the thing about Perry Mason that was so cool is he never lost a case. Which was good. Because if you ever watch Perry Mason, he never, ever defended anybody that was guilty. Everybody he defended was always framed or something or some victim of circumstances. But he was always innocent. So it was good that he always won because the innocent person got set free. Look, I've I've never been an attorney. I've never played one on television. But I am sure of this. There is not a defense attorney in the world that wants justice. Especially if they have a guilty client. And yet, Jesus' advocacy, his intercession, his defense attorney is one who is honest. He understands he is not representing innocent people. He's representing guilty people. All Jesus' clients are guilty. That includes you and me. And Jesus can't stand in front of his father and go, he was framed. Because he's He wasn't. I wasn't. Matt wasn't. Julia wasn't. None of us were framed. We're guilty. Guilty as can be. Dead to rights. Called. Got nowhere to go. Our guilt is certain. Yet Jesus goes and he asks his father not for justice, but for mercy. He comes and says, Father, I plead on their behalf. Do not give them the penalty that is due to them. I will take it myself. I will pay the penalty for their crimes. I will do what they 
could not. You see, when Jesus goes, he doesn't go before his father and he doesn't plead our righteousness. When he goes to the father and intercedes on my behalf, he doesn't go, Justin's a great guy. He's righteous. You know, he's doing good, God. You'd be proud of him. No, it's not what he does. His father, he's guilty. He's guilty as can be. But I want to trade places with him. I want to take all my rightness, all my goodness, and I'm going to give that to him. And I'm going to let you take my righteousness and charge it to his account. And by doing that, justice is served and mercy is given. He gives us his righteousness and he takes our sin. That's what Jesus is doing. Constantly interceding on our behalf according to his righteousness. Because we need it because of our fallenness. But let's look. He can only do that because of what he did. Let's look in verse 2. He says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Probably not a word you use every day in that sentence. Propitiation. I don't. I can't imagine that comes up in everyday conversation at your workplace or in your home. But it's a word that if we look and we follow it back, it it talks about the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you should all know what the Ark of the Covenant is if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. You all know what it looks like anyway. Of course, the Ark of the Covenant was, was the box that God had the Israelites built. And it dwelt... His place was in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And only once a year, the high priest would enter into the temple. And on top of the box was uh, a pure gold slab. It measured about 45 inches by 27 inches. And the cherubs sat on top of it, if you've ever seen it. The cherubs on each side. And And on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest who was selected would come in... And he would sprinkle the blood of a sacrificial lamb on the mercy seat. And it was a plea for forgiveness for the sins of the nation. And the word really came to denote to wipe out or to cover over. And that's what Jesus became. He became the mercy seat. He became the sacrifice for our sins. In fact, the mercy seat, the blood of the lamb pointed to Christ. It was a way of, of, of saying, you know, this is temporary, but a permanent solution to this is coming. And that's what Jesus became. When the blood is sprinkled on the top there, it ceased to be a place of judgment. And it became a place of mercy. And that's what Jesus did for us. When his blood came and his blood was shed and his blood was spilled, it wiped away. It appeased God's wrath. It satisfied every penalty that was due, every requirement that was required, everything that had ever happened that was bad and evil and displeasing to God. Jesus took that away through his death. And he did it for us. Jesus suffered for us. Jesus was the sacrifice 
for us. That's what he did. That's why he came. And he didn't sacrifice. He didn't, again, I want to make this clear. He didn't just offer a sacrifice. That's what the high priest did. He came and offered the blood of some lamb. Jesus came and he offered his blood, his life. Not somebody else's. He didn't merely offer the sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. And when he did that, he suffered the full, unmitigated wrath of God. And he did it for us. He did it for everyone who has ever lived. Again, our advocate. Jesus is our advocate. He didn't plead for our innocence. He didn't say, look, there's extenuating circumstances He had to do it. He was forced to commit this crime. He says, no, they're guilty, but punish me instead. And that's what he did. On the cross, he assumed all our guilt. He paid all our penalty that was due. And his sacrifice was eternal. It was a sacrifice that never, ever needs to be repeated. It was once and done, his sacrifice. And his sacrifice was one that was sufficient. Notice what it says here. He says, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus' death was not only good for the sins of the past, not only for the sins of the present, but for the sins of all people who ever lived or ever would live. His death on the cross was completely sufficient for that. To reach every tribe, every nation, every country, every man, every woman, every child. He is the universal sacrifice for sin. He was sufficient for that. And his sacrifice was unique. There has never been another one like it. A lot of people struggle. You know, a lot of people who aren't Christians, they struggle with this idea that Jesus is the only way to salvation. They struggle with that. But the reason we have to understand that Jesus was the, is the only way to salvation is because he is the only one who has ever been an acceptable sacrifice to the Father. Because he alone was uniquely qualified. He alone was holy and just and righteous and without sin. So Jesus is our advocate. He's constantly interceding on our behalf. Jesus was our sacrifice. He did a great and amazing thing for us. So what should we do in response? Brings me to my third point, what we should be doing. As we look again, as we look back at verses 8 through 10 of chapter 1, we see here John has no patience for the professional perfectionist. These people who say they never sin. These people that say, I'm I'm perfect. But in the same way, he has no use for people who are loose livers. People who live loose and free lives without regard to what God would have them to do. Now, John likely wrote this letter at at least partially in response to a heresy that was going around in the church in that day. A heresy called Gnosticism. It's helpful to understand a little bit about that in order to understand what he talks about here. Gnostics believed a lot of things, but one of the things they believed is that everything physical is bad. So, so that, that is only the spiritual is good, only the spiritual is ultimately saved. Everything physical is bad, doesn't matter. And so 
one of the things that came out of that was something that was called antinomianism. And it really all that meant was against the law or anti-law or against the law. And, and basically what they said was, and there was a couple of different ways this played out. And John was possibly addressing one or both of them here in this book. And basically the first one said, look, salvation is only about what's inside. It's only about our spirit or our soul or whatever they chose to call it. Your body doesn't matter. Therefore, it's irrelevant. So go do whatever you want to do with that. Go use your body however you want to. Go, go do whatever because it doesn't matter. You can drink and, and, and run around and, and party and just do terrible things with your body because that's going away anyway. There was also sort of this other more kind of spiritual dimension to it that they would say, look, God, when he looks at us, he doesn't see any sin in us. So because he doesn't see any sin and because we're in Christ, we're cool, let's go do whatever we want to do. Because it doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want to do because you're in Christ, so you're good. But John makes it clear here that this is not possible. That it is not possible to be in Christ and at the same time embrace sin as a way of life. We can't do it as Christians. We can't embrace sin and embrace Jesus. It will not work. And that's what he's saying here. You know, he, he says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. It's not really a verse that needs a lot of exposition. It's pretty plain. It's pretty straightforward. If you say you know him, but then you don't do what he says, you're a liar. Period. It's pretty strong words. And what I want us to understand is what he talks about here in in verse 5. He says, But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. This is sort of my point of the whole thing is that I want us to understand that what moves us and what motivates us to follow Jesus, what moves us and what motivates us to obey Jesus, is love. What moves us and motivates us to obey Him is our love for Him because of what He has done for us. We think about it, our love for Jesus, number one, has to be thankful When we obey Him, we do it out of gratitude because of what He has given us, the gift of salvation and how freely He's given us. It has to be active. And that's what He's saying here. He's saying if we truly love Jesus, it's going to show in our life. We're going to do things. It's going to manifest itself in a way that moves us to act. And it's going to move us to act in ways that are not contrary to what He does but they're in accord with what he desires. Our love for Jesus will lead us to action. And he, and he says here that our love should be a love that is guarded. He says that we will keep his commandments. It's an interesting word there. And it's really a word that means to keep safe a precious thing. We keep it safe. We guard it by observing it. 
And really it's Jesus that we're keeping. It's Jesus that we're keeping close. But it comes out in our following his will. And then our love for Jesus is to be a love that is progressive. It's growing. It's maturing. It's moving towards this ideal perfection all along. In the proportion as we love God, that shows how much we know him. You know, the more you know God, the more you know Jesus, the more you're going to love him. If you don't love him, it's evidence that you don't know him. Because if you know him, you can't help but love him. It talks about us abiding in him. That's what it says in verse 6, that whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way he walked. To abide in Christ, that's what we're called to do. It's a word, it means to, to live in someone's home with them. To have this fellowship, this idea of family, this intimate relationship, this intimate communion and dependency and harmony and friendship. That's what we're called to have with Jesus. If if we love Jesus, we'll do what he says. That'll be our heart. Our heart will be to be obedient to him. Let me sort of back up just in case that was kind of confusing and modeled, which it may have been. The bottom line is this. Our obedience to God is a response to his love for us. It is not a way of gaining his love. Everybody get that? We don't obey to gain God's love. We obey because he loves us. And that's what we think so, so often in the church today. We think, wow, you know, if, if I just do better, if I just try harder, if I just work more, if I'm just better, you know, if I read my Bible more, if I pray more, if I witness more, if I work harder at the church, then God will love me more. No, he won't. He has already loved you as much as he could possibly love you by giving Jesus for you and for me. That's what we need to understand. The fact that Jesus was our sacrifice, the fact that Jesus is our advocate, that shows how great God's love is for us. That's what we need to focus on. That's what we need to understand. We don't obey so he will love us. We obey because he loves us. And we need to get that. We need to understand that. A few years ago, a lot of you probably remember, a lot of you probably own some of the paraphernalia. But there was this, uh, this the big thing that went around, WWJD. Remember that? What does that mean? What would Jesus do? Now, what you may or may not know about that is that that was actually based on a book. It's a book called In His Steps by Charles Sheldon. It was written in 1897, something like that. Kind of an interesting little piece of fiction. And it became this huge thing, of course, right? Suddenly, you start seeing everybody with WWJD bracelets on. They start out in church and youth groups and all that. Suddenly, you're starting to see pro athletes and rappers and, and politicians. Everybody's got on the WWJD. They're on the WWJD bandwagon, right? And it just kind of gets out of kind of gets out of control and it becomes this meaningless fad. I want to submit to you tonight that WWJD, what would Jesus do, was not the right question to ask. It was never the right question to ask. 
Because what happens with WWJD is it, it comes down to what I just talked about. It comes down to making the gospel do more, try harder, and God will love you. Do more, try harder, and God will bless you. The gospel then becomes about, about self-improvement. It becomes this set of do's and don'ts, this set of rules and regulations that if we follow it, then Jesus can make me a better, a better version of me. He can improve me. But see, the thing is, Jesus didn't come to make me the best me I could be. He didn't come to make you the best you you could be. Because at my very best, I'm still going to be terrible. At your very best, you're still going to be terrible. No, Jesus didn't come to make me the best me I could be. He came to give a dead man life. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to take someone who was dead, lifeless, and hopeless and give him life and hope and eternity. That's what Jesus came to do. You know, he came to take a wretched man, me, and transform me into someone in his image. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what the gospel is. Otherwise, if the gospel, if it becomes about WWJD and it becomes about rules of do's and don'ts and self-improvement, at the end of the day, at the end of that, I'm nothing but a well-dressed corpse. I look good, but I'm not good for anything except stinking. That's it. No, I think the right question is that we in the church need to focus on is not what would Jesus do, but what has Jesus done? That's where we need to put our focus. That's what we need to understand in first place of primary importance. Understand what Jesus has done for us. Understand what Jesus is doing for us. And then... And only then, we can ask the question, what would Jesus have me to do now? But if we don't understand this first, if we don't understand what Jesus has done, if we don't understand that He has become the sacrifice for our sins, if we don't understand that He is constantly interceding for us before this Father, we are going to miss it. Because our works, our good works... Must be a response to his great love. If it is anything else, we will miss the mark because there is no more powerful motivator in the world than love. You can motivate somebody with fear for a little while, you can motivate somebody with guilt for a little while, you can motivate somebody with shame for a little while, but love will move us and will motivate us forever. Look, if you have kids, that's all you got to know, right? Your kids can be rotten. They can be lousy. I mean, you think about them when they're born. Okay, they're cute. But they're little monsters, right? They're selfish. They're self-centered. They require all this work. I mean, there's just a lot of work with a little baby. But have you ever loved anything as much as you loved your child? Especially when they were little. Probably not. And that's the way it is. You do anything for your kids, not because 
You want them to love you. You hope they do. Not because of what great things they're doing for you, because they ain't doing anything but costing you money and sleep. No, you love them because you love them. And that needs to be our response to God because of what He's done for us in Jesus. And that's what we got to focus on. Because if we, if we miss that, if we bypass that, if we go past it too quickly, if we see the cross as some, some moral lesson, some example of how we're supposed to live, we will miss what Jesus has done. And when we miss what we, He has done, we will miss our love for Him because we don't understand how much He loves us. So here's the thing. I don't know where everybody is in the room tonight, where you are in Christ, if you're in Christ at all. But I want to encourage you for a few things. If you don't know Christ, look to the gospel. Look to the cross. Understand that you cannot earn God's love. You already have it. He gave Jesus for you. Trust in what he has done. And stop trusting in what you can do. But there's another, another set of people. Now this is the one that's scary. And this is the one that will get me in trouble. This is the one John's talking to. People who say they know Jesus. Who say they love Jesus. But they really don't. The liars. Look, I'm going to give you a real simple test. You want to know, do you love Jesus? Do you do what he says? That's it. That's the test. Pretty simple. Do you love him? Do you do what he says? Because if you don't obey him, John's clear, you don't love him. And if you don't love him, it's because you don't know him. And if you don't know him and love him, I will submit to you, it's because you do not get the gospel. You do not get what Jesus has done. You do not get what Jesus is doing. And then, you know, I hope it's the condition of everybody in here that you all do love Jesus. And it's evident by the way you live your life. So to you, I'd say take hope. Take confidence and comfort that we have an advocate who continually intercedes on our behalf. Think about that for a second. We've got Jesus constantly interceding. And every time we mess up, he looks at his father and says, that's on me. He's got my righteousness. That means we have this, this amazing comfort with God. We can act without fear of failure. You can do things. You can try things. You don't have to earn God's approval. You can be free in that. So go and do it. And be free. Walk as Jesus walked. So what is Jesus doing? He's continually interceding on our behalf. What did Jesus do? He became the sacrifice for our sins. And what should we be doing? We should be loving him by obeying him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for... Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the wonderful truth of the gospel. Thank you for how much you love us and the way you've shown that love in Christ. Father, the way that you have, he gave himself in our place. 
He took the penalty for our sin. Father, help that truth to take deep root in our minds and in our hearts. Help us to meditate on it and understand it. Where we don't understand it, give our minds clarity. Father, help us to know you better, to know the gospel better. That as we meditate and understand your great love for us, that we would respond by loving you, by obeying you, and living our lives in a way that is that are pleasing to you, that are honoring to you, and that ultimately brings you glory. Father, we just praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you more than you can possibly fathom. And we know this because Jesus covered our sins. He's our propitiation, and he advocates for us every minute of every day. So know him, and love him, and obey him. And if you should ever need at any point through this week to follow up with any of this, or want someone to pray with you, I know that Justin would be happy to, I would be happy to, grab us after the service. Right now, I just want to pray over you as you uh, are dismissed and have time to speak with each other before you leave. Please come back tomorrow evening, 7 p.m. Justin will be um, opening God's word to us again. Thank you for coming. Let's pray before we go. Father, thank you for Jesus. Please do your miracle work in our hearts, helping us to understand what it is he has done for us. Help us to understand just how much you love us in him and help us to respond rightly with love for you and obedience. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.